Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah. The charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh-oh. Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Hey there, it's me, Bapu. Today on the show, we have a special guest for you. What do you prefer to be called? Do you go by your first name? What do you prefer? Go by first name, please. That's Dr. Francis Collins. For just a few more days, he's the director of the National Institutes of Health. The NIH is the main federal agency funding health-related research in the United States. Each year, the NIH spends about $42 billion in funding for medical research at its own labs and through grants to outside scientists. So, pretty important always, but especially now. Research funded by the NIH has paved the way for treatments in cancer, heart disease, mental health, HIV, rare diseases, the list is practically endless. And of course, the NIH has played a huge role in the fight against COVID-19. By the way, full disclosure, I have received some NIH awards and grants for my research, and uh, I wouldn't say no to more. Anyway, Dr. Collins has been NIH director for 12 years. He served under Presidents Obama, Trump, and Biden. That's pretty rare for a political appointee. In fact, Collins is the longest-serving presidentially appointed director of the National Institutes of Health. But, as I mentioned, he's only got a few days left in the job before he steps down on December 19th. So, it seemed like the perfect time to reflect on his career at the NIH and what comes next. From the Freakonomics Radio Network, this is Freakonomics MD. I'm Bapu Jenna. I'm a medical doctor and an economist. And this is a show where I dissect fascinating questions at the sweet spot between health and economics. Usually, I talk to you all about a study or a few studies that answer a question that I want to know the answer to. But sometimes, I have the opportunity to talk one-on-one with someone special. Today on the show, a conversation with Dr. Francis Collins. We'll cover everything from what the NIH could copy from the Defense Department to how we went from waiting five days for a COVID test result to just 15 minutes. We set up a shark tank and essentially invited anybody who had a great idea about a way to detect SARS-CoV-2. Tell me a little bit about yourself. I can tell you've got a Southern accent. I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. When I came up north to college, I used to say things like high school instead of high school and, and where are y'all going instead of where are you all going? I, I think you're from Virginia from what I, from what I recall, but 
Tell me a little bit about how you grew up, why did you get into medicine, and, and what was your path to the NIH? Well, it was very nonlinear, let me tell you. <laughs> so I grew up on a small farm in the Shenandoah Valley, Virginia. You got that right. There you go. Homeschooled by my parents who didn't trust the uh, local county schools to be as good as they were as educators, and they were probably right. <laughs> Ultimately ended up in public school, got excited about science because of a chemistry teacher. So I decided I should be a chemist. I uh, majored in chemistry at the University of Virginia, went off to Yale and got a PhD in physical chemistry, and then had this, oh, wake-up call about biology that I kind of ignored, that maybe it might be interesting too, especially this molecule called DNA. Off I went to medical school, University of North Carolina, and really fell in love with the idea of medicine combined with genetics. And that's kind of uh, what then led me ultimately to the University of Michigan, where as a faculty member, teaching medical students, taking care of patients, and mostly doing research, had the experience of a lot of really interesting and challenging projects, including finding the gene for cystic fibrosis back in 1989, a long time ago. The Genome Project was just getting introduced at that point, and I was a big fan of it, but not prepared for that phone call from the NIH director, Bernadine Healy, saying, I want you to come and lead this. And that was a tough decision to become a, oh my God, federal employee, but... But how can you say no to the chance to do this? That was 1993 when the project was kind of controversial and probably wasn't very likely to succeed, but it seemed like it was worth a try. The Human Genome Project was the international effort to sequence and map all of our genes, all of them. The project was part of the NIH, and Collins led the agency's genome sequencing efforts until 2008. When the project first started, there were concerns about how the information would be used, But because of the work, scientists now have what Collins calls a blueprint for building every human cell. I got to tell you, the implications for disease diagnosis, treatment, and prevention are truly enormous. Collins became director of the NIH in 2009, which is when I started my intern year in medicine. That brings me to a question I've been wanting to ask Dr. Collins for decades. So when I was a grad student at the University of Chicago, this is probably in like the mid-2000s, I remember going to the airport one day. I was stuck in traffic on a road called the Dan Ryan Expressway. If you've ever been to Chicago, it's like a nightmare. Oh, yeah. It's a nightmare. And there was some construction happening, which made it a double nightmare. And all I could think to myself was, wow, you know, the value of time lost to all of these people on the highway was so incredibly high. Why didn't the city just pay three or four times what it was paying to get this highway fixed. Perhaps if we quadrupled how much money we spend on getting that road fixed, it could be done faster. Now, let me tell you why that matters for why we're talking today. So also at that time, I was starting to study the economic value of improvements in HIV and cancer survival. And some of the work that we were doing was trying to figure out What was the societal return to funding by the NIH for these diseases? And it's probably not a surprise, but what we were finding was that survival had increased dramatically, especially in HIV, but also cancer survival as well. And the returns, the economic returns to private and public funding in those diseases was also really enormous. That was almost 20 years ago, and maybe I've waited 20 years to ask you this question. When we think about diseases like cancer and heart disease, which are obviously leading killers, What would happen if we tripled or quadrupled NIH funding on those diseases? Do you think we'd get breakthroughs or cures any faster? I think we probably could. 
And people have done that analysis about how much money is being saved every time we drop the deaths from cancer, which we, by the way, are dropping now one or 2% per year over the last 20 years. It's one of those things people haven't maybe paid attention to. I think I read that each 1% drop there in terms of economic value is worth something like $500 billion. I mean, it's a big deal. Yeah, it's a huge deal. And my sense is that there's a lot of money or value on the table, obviously, from improving survival in these diseases even more so. So the NIH spends something like $40 billion a year on research. And maybe ask the question a little bit differently is, you know, how much different would our health and the innovations that we have in medicine look if it spent $200 billion a year. So then part of your question is, do we have the capacity to actually utilize those kinds of funds if they were to be doubled, or I guess your example more like (laughs) multiplied by five? Is there actually a, a workforce out there that could take those funds and put them to good use? Or, or would this be like just throwing money at a problem without any good ideas? You know, I think there is a workforce that's underutilized. If you send us a grant with your really good ideas, it goes through our peer review system. You've been through this, Babu, you know. Yeah. And what's your chance of getting funded? It's about 20% across the board. So one out of five. We have looked over the course of time when that success rate has gone up and down a bit. And I would say in a healthy situation, it ought to be a lot better than 20%. So we are leaving good science on the table by the fact that we can't fund right now more than one out of five. So I know if we could take that success rate up tomorrow to say 30, 35%, there'd be a lot more great science happening and that would accelerate advances that would reduce healthcare costs and save lives. And I wish I could make that case uh, (laughs) to somebody who would actually respond. I know that you've been involved in sort of this, maybe I call it a high risk, high rewards approach to grant funding. And the idea is that there's innovations that are incremental and then the innovations that are really dramatic. And those are often high risk sorts of investments. What is your thought on the role of the NIH in that kind of research? We need to, I think, have really a broad range of approaches. Recognize that most of the advances that happen in biomedical research can't really be organized in a top-down way. They're the brilliant insights of investigators who come to us with their ideas. But I think we were concerned going back a couple of decades that the peer review process could tend to be a little conservative. And then especially if you have success rates that are only 20% or sometimes less than that. And think of yourself, you're a peer reviewer. You got this pile of 40 grants you're supposed to go through. And in there, there's some amazingly solid, phenomenally well-written grant applications from a highly recognized investigator who's going to do some really impressive, but frankly, kind of incremental research to build on the foundation they already got. And then you've got this other grant that doesn't have much preliminary data. It's got kind of a slightly wacky idea, but if it worked, it would be amazing. And you can't fund both of those. Which one are you going to fund? (laughs) Well, you tend to fund the one that's a sure thing, but we don't want just sure things. At some point, we should talk about ARPA-H as the latest example of a way to put that high-risk, high-reward into overdrive. Tell me about that. I'm curious. Ah, well, you know about DARPA, yeah, which is the Department of Defense's high-risk, high-reward research enterprise that 
over the years has had some pretty remarkable successes, like, you know, the internet, for instance. <laughs> I thought that was Al Gore. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure he was working at DARPA at the time. And, you know, they've done GPS and self-driving cars had a big role from DARPA. And NIH hasn't really had something quite like that, where you have a division that has a totally different culture. They're not into the standard peer review at all. You have a director who's a visionary, who's looking across the landscape for really exciting opportunities that would probably never result in a standard NIH grant application. And the director hires a bunch of people who come in for maybe three years to run something big and bold, and they have resources. And they identify interesting targets like, okay, let's really jack up cancer vaccines using mRNA and figure out who the partners need to be, build a collaboration because they got the resources to throw at it, hold those folks responsible for reaching milestones and be ready to pull the plug quickly if failure is happening and see what happens. I'm very excited about this. President Biden has been a big proponent of this. The Congress seems pretty interested. They've uh, tentatively uh, put down a dollar figure of maybe $3 billion for the first year of this, maybe as soon as a few months from now. We just need some authorizations for the hiring and the contracting. But I think this is probably going to happen. And it's a very different model of doing medical research. But I must say, a lot of what we've done during COVID has had that same attitude. We don't have time to go through the usual slow process of considering what is the peer review outcome of a pile of grants? We've got to do things faster than that. Coming up after the break, who's better at funding innovation, the private sector or the government? And what's been the NIH's role in fighting COVID-19? This is Freakonomics MD. I'm Bapu Jenna. My conversation with Dr. Francis Collins continues right after this. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. My wife is trying to get ready to drive to Michigan. Is it interfering? Oh my gosh. Well, let me close, let me close the door. Hang on. That again is our guest today, Dr. Francis Collins of the National Institutes of Health. Dealing with all the fun work from home challenges all of us are facing. Okay, I'm back, hopefully more quiet. 
Before the break, Dr. Collins told us about the NIH's new ARPA-H program. That's short for Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health. And it's meant to tackle the most pressing medical problems. It hasn't been officially put into place yet, but as Dr. Collins said, it's something President Biden wants to do. But I wondered, if this program were in place, how might that have changed our approach to COVID-19 research? So when I think about COVID-19, obviously the U.S. has done a lot in terms of advancing our understanding of how the disease spreads, the risk factors, the treatments, the epidemiology. But, you know, places like Israel and the U.K. have, I think, had maybe an outsized role compared to what you might have expected. And part of the challenge, I feel like, has been that the way that we conceive of and fund research in this country is a little bit different than we might expect in a situation like this, which is, you know, you almost want like an NIH SWAT team to come in and say, all right, we need to figure out whether or not opening schools is unsafe for communities. We need to figure out in a randomized trial or multiple large randomized trials, whether or not masks work. You've got researchers out there doing studies, funding work on their own or from small grants, but the sort of societal implications of the answers to those questions is so enormous I don't know why there wasn't a centralized effort to say we want four or five teams focused on the sole question of whether or not opening schools is safe. Four or five teams focused on what are the clinical, the epidemiologic, and economic impact of shutdowns. And all these five groups would be funded simultaneously, and then we look at the results. I'm curious to get your overall thoughts on that. Well, those would be really important experiments to do. I think they would have been challenging in the United States when you have local leaders and governors who have their own ideas about what they're going to allow to have happen. So you have to sort of figure out how to negotiate that. I take your point. I do think there were areas, though, Bapu, where we did organize ourselves in that SWAT team mode when it came to testing therapeutic agents. And that's a partnership I want to tell you about called Active. Or when it came to developing at-home testing using new technologies that otherwise would still be sitting somewhere in somebody's lab, but are now out there on the pharmacy shelf program called RADx, Rapid Acceleration of Diagnostics, which we pretty much ran like we were a venture capital organization to make that happen. Those were really new and previously untested approaches, and they worked. So can I tell you about RADx? Yeah, please. Absolutely. Yeah. So we all know we got off to a rough start in the U.S. as far as testing capabilities. The Congress identifying this as a serious issue came to NIH back in April of 2020 and said, guys, we got to do something here. We want to see more technologies that are actually reliable and particularly those that are point of care. Because look at these turnaround times for testing where you don't get the result back for five days. And by then, if it's positive, you've already infected other people. So we took them at their word. Five days after they gave us a billion dollars, we set up what is basically a venture capital approach, including a shark tank, and essentially invited anybody who had a great idea about a way to detect SARS-CoV-2 to bring that forward in a rather quick application. We figured out which of those had the most promise, hundreds of them, and then threw them into this shark tank with technology experts, engineers, business experts, people who know about scale-up and manufacturing, to see whether they had the real promise. And over the course of what was essentially an innovation funnel approach, we have 34 technologies that otherwise wouldn't be there, including most of the ones that are now point-of-care and over-the-counter available in your pharmacy. 
And that has made it possible now for us to have a capacity of about 3 million tests a day. That was just an interesting experience because there was no standard peer review panel. There was an awful lot of decision-making. There were a lot of failures, as you might expect, but we learned a lot along the way about how to do this. I wish we could do more of that with ARPA-H, and maybe we will get to. So, Francis, let me let me piggyback of something with the RADx and the testing. So it seems like this is really sort of a public-private partnership. It makes me think of this issue that comes up when we talk about new medical breakthroughs and how much they cost. There's always this question that comes up of how much of the breakthrough was the result of federal research funding versus investments from the private sector. And I'm curious, you know, what are your thoughts on the role of government in funding innovation versus the private sector? From an economics perspective, I think of the role of government as getting involved in funding and things that have really large spillover effects to society that broaden the base of knowledge, things that any individual private innovator really might not be incentivized to see through. And I think that's often the rationale for the focus on basic science versus basic science discoveries that are so far from the patient that companies wouldn't kind of do as much of that. I'm really glad to talk about this because this is a bit of a personal passion. First of all, the government contribution for medicine, if you look closely, is incredibly important to what happens. Fred Ledley has done this repeated analysis of what exactly has been the government contribution when you see a new medication that is approved by the FDA and that is in a place where we haven't had a medicine like that before. And over the course of many years looking at this, what is the proportion that have NIH fundamental research undergirding it? It's 100%. <laughs> so virtually all drugs that get developed are based upon the basic foundation that then builds into this remarkable ecosystem where drug companies pick it up and carry it forward to a product. That has always seemed to me over my 12 years as NIH director as something that we ought to tap into even more effectively, that we ought to be able to find ways in which in a pre-competitive place, we could work more closely with industry to work on problems together. Out of that came the Accelerating Medicines Partnership, AMP, which I co-founded with Michael Dolston, who's the chief scientist of Pfizer, about eight years ago and which has now grown to a total of seven projects, diabetes, Alzheimer's, rheumatoid arthritis, Parkinson's, schizophrenia. And this is, I don't think been done before, is we figure out in each of those instances, what is the shared area of science that neither sector can quite do on their own, but we could do better together. There's about 20 companies involved, NIH, FDA plays a big role, which is really helpful. Industry has to pay half the cost, so they've got skin in the game. And it was that experience of finding out we could do this together and getting to know each other, because relationships matter, that helped us when COVID came along. In just a space of two weeks, put together a similar public-private partnership called ACTIVE, Accelerating COVID-19 Therapeutic Interventions and Vaccines. Of course, it has to be an acronym. <laughs> and out of that, we prioritized amongst the ones that needed to get into clinical trials. We designed master protocols. We figured out how to put clinical trial networks together. We put together the plans for vaccines that made it sure that those vaccine trials were going to be well-designed and FDA would be able to evaluate them. And all of that happened in a remarkably quick period of time and continues to this day. So I was going to say, it's a good thing you call that active and not activa, because then there might be uh, trademark infringement issues on the yogurt. <laughs> no, no, we stop at V. We don't go beyond <laughs> 
you're you're retiring soon, is that right? I'm stepping down. Stepping down. As an IH director to go back to my lab, which I've been continuing to operate uh, for all this time and is doing amazing things right now in diabetes research and rare disease research. And I'm looking forward to having a little more time with my postdocs and postbacs and uh, senior scientists to help uh, steer that effort. And maybe a time to think and write and try to decide what to do when I grow up. Any particular reason why now? Well, 12 years is a long time, Bapu. No previous NIH director has served more than one president. I'm working on my third president. And I think organizations like NIH need new visionary leadership to sort of reboot. So it seemed like time to give the president a chance to appoint somebody else. And you don't want to do that too late in the term because it gets really hard to make it happen. So it seems like if I'm not sticking it out for many more years, this was a good year to say, okay, I'm going to step away. And by the end of 2021, I'll be back in the lab. All right. So I have one last question. First of all, thank you for sharing this arc of your life. It actually shares a lot of similarity with my own father. He grew up in a very small town in India, but you know his parents couldn't really read or write, so they couldn't educate him. But he had a chemistry teacher who thought he could do something. And uh, he came to this country years later and became a professor of physics and still going hard. Here's the question. You've done a lot. What was the happiest day of your life? Wow. You know, there's been a lot of them in terms of the science part, but we haven't talked about the personal part. I think the happiest day of my life was probably getting married to Diane, my better half, my soulmate, my best friend, my lover, my just remarkable enricher of my life. So yeah, that would be right up there. (laughs) Okay. I'll make sure that after this podcast airs, I send this to her directly by email. Uh, Snapchat, Instagram. I want to make sure that she sees this, <laughs> that she hears this. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. It was nice to talk to you, Bapu. That was Dr. Francis Collins, the head of the National Institutes of Health, who, again, will be leaving his role of director of the NIH in a few days. It was a great conversation and something that I've been looking forward to. You know, it's hard being a researcher, especially starting out as one. One study found that early scientists whose NIH proposals received scores just below the cutoff for funding were more likely to disappear from the NIH system. In other words, they stopped applying for grants, compared to early scientists whose proposals had slightly higher scores. But that same study found that those early losses may have had a silver lining. The research that emerged from those scientists whose grants were rejected ended up being more impactful than the research of those scientists who, by chance really, got funded. I'll make sure to keep telling myself this every time I get one of my proposals rejected. In all seriousness, though, it's hard to listen to Dr. Collins and not be hopeful about science and and about a lot of things. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed, and as always, feel free to send me your thoughts, questions, comments, anything really, to bapu at freakonomics.com. That's B-A-P-U at Freakonomics.com. And if you can, leave a review for Freakonomics MD wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening. Freakonomics MD is part of the Freakonomics Radio Network, which also includes Freakonomics Radio, No Stupid Questions, and People I Mostly Admire. This show is produced by Stitcher and Renbud Radio. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Bapu Pod. Original music composed by Luis Guerra. 
This episode was produced by Mary DeDuke and mixed by Eleanor Osborne. The supervising producer was Tracy Samuelson. Our staff also includes Allison Preglo, Greg Rippin, Emma Terrell, Jasmine Klinger, Lyric Bowditch, Jacob Clementi, and Stephen Dubner. If you like this show or any other show in the Freakonomics Radio Network, please recommend it to your family and friends. That's the best way to support the podcasts you love. As always, thanks for listening. So the name of this show is Freakonomics MD, based on the podcast and book Freakonomics. Do you think if I sent 100 applications to ARPA-H, they could help us come up with a better name? No, (laughs) that won't work. (laughs) Ah, you might need another source for that answer. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. The Freakonomics Radio Network, the hidden side of everything. Stitcher. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Redfin. Whether you need to buy or sell a home or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin has got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even the same day with a local Redfin agent. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents get you the best price possible for your home. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today.